Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this episode. So stick around and we will jump right on in. Right, so before we get started, are you looking for a gift for your loved ones in the upcoming season, but don't want to get them some consumer junk that'll just get tossed out in a couple weeks? I know I always struggle to find gifts that will have a positive impact, something that will fill the coming year with the practical and positive solutions that permaculture has to offer. So consider a gift subscription to Permaculture Magazine of North America. From recipes from the garden to useful DIY projects, tips from the pros, and so much more, A subscription to Permaculture Magazine is a perfect way to spread positivity and useful knowledge all year long. Your friends and family will be thrilled to have all this information at their fingertips as they develop their own healthy and regenerative lifestyles. If you order the print version, you'll also receive the 25-year digital archive of the original Permaculture International Magazine from the UK as a free bonus for a limited time only. There's also a digital subscription option for people like me who are always traveling and need this as a resource while we're on the go. Permaculture Magazine is a proud sponsor of the Abundant Edge podcast and here to be a platform to support the voices of the permaculture movement throughout North America. So show your support this holiday season and help to strengthen the permaculture revolution with a subscription today at permaculturemag.org. All right, welcome to a super special episode because I get asked all the time about my design process and how it contributes to a regenerative lifestyle and a truly living home. So rather than answering each person individually, I've decided to make this one into a podcast and blog post that you can read on the website under the news tab in the navigation bar. Now I'll certainly get deep into the design process in this episode, and there's even a free PDF of the Abundant Edge building design criteria available as a free download on the show notes for this episode on the website, But before I go into all of that, I want to start by talking about why natural building is such an important and often overlooked and underappreciated aspect of permaculture. Now I see how big the movement around permaculture landscape management has become and why people are so attracted to it. And I think it's all wonderful and valuable and an essential step for us as a global culture to take if we intend to continue living on this planet. But I also feel that some of the priorities are a little lopsided when it comes to the essentials for life as human beings, especially in modern times. So a good way of putting things into perspective is by looking at the survival rule of threes. Now many of you probably already know them. They refer to food, water, and shelter. So in general, a healthy human being can survive 30 days without food, 3 days without water, but only 3 hours without shelter. Now, obviously, the shelter rule only applies in situations of extreme weather like extreme cold, heat, or storms. And in many places in the world, you could live just fine without shelter for about 99% of the year. But you sure want to have a good shelter option for that last 1% to say nothing about climates where half the year or more, you want to have a cozy space just to be comfortable for most of the day. But the point is that most permaculture courses focus heavily on providing food and water in an abundant system design and only touch on the topic of shelter by glossing over passive solar design, gray water systems, or how to select a good site for a house in the landscape. But let's take a look at why the built environment deserves a lot more attention 
if we really want to design regenerative living systems. So first of all, the world's population is rapidly urbanizing. So first of all, the world's population is rapidly urbanizing. For the first time in history, more than 50% of the world's population lives in cities, and 2 billion more are expected to move to cities in just the next 20 years. Now, while I completely understand the romance and desire to move to the countryside, I mean, I myself own a little shared farm and live part of the year in a little rural indigenous Mayan village in Guatemala, after all. Increasingly, this is becoming impractical for most people on the planet. Over 90% of that urban growth is occurring in developing countries, which add an estimated 70 million new urban residents each year. So think of how much construction, both formal and informal in the construction of slums, that that is going to require. So let's take a look at what impact the construction industry is having on our planet to get an idea of how this building boom might continue to affect where we live. According to new research by construction blog BIMHOW, the construction sector currently contributes 23% of air pollution, 50% of climate change causing waste products, 40% of drinking water pollution, and 50% of landfill waste. In separate research by the U.S. Green Building Council, the construction industry accounts for 40% of worldwide energy use. Now this isn't even calculating how much energy these buildings use after they're built. Furthermore, the EPA found that the U.S. construction industry alone accounts for 160 million tons, or 25% of non-industrial waste generation every year. Research by Clayworks International, whose former director Janelle Kapoor has a remarkable interview on this podcast on community building back in episode 10, says that building materials such as concrete, aluminum, and steel are directly responsible for large quantities of CO2 gas emissions, due especially to the high content of embodied energy in their production, with 9.8 million tons of CO2 generated from the production of 76 million tons of finished concrete in the U.S. This amounts to roughly 5% of carbon emissions worldwide. If this wasn't worrying enough, construction activities consume half of the resources extracted from nature, from everything to logging to mining, and account for one-sixth of global freshwater consumption, one-quarter of wood consumption, and one-quarter of global waste. So everything about the process of our built world is broken. From the way we build, the materials we use, to systems we install that demand constant consumption. The weirdest part is that we know how to build without doing all this damage, and the knowledge has been with us for millennia. Anyway, sorry, I get really passionate about that stuff. <laughs> the truth is that homes and buildings are the nucleus of any site, where the majority of all energy and resources flow through and are either wasted or maximized for the best and most efficient use. Yet most permaculture designs start at Zone 1, which to me is absurd. Zone zero is really where it all begins. With the majority of permaculture enthusiasts not having either the desire or the ability to start a whole farm or move to larger acreage, applying permaculture to the home will have far more impact on environmental health than anywhere in your yard or garden. So let's start talking solutions. When paired with permaculture design principles, natural building has the potential to save you way more money and reduce your waste much more than growing your own food and building soil on a small scale. 
This comes back to the principle that you'll hear me preach a lot about, which is that it's often more effective to reduce your waste and destruction than to mask it with a few small positive acts. Now, I'll never say anything against planting an herb spiral or installing a water catchment barrel, for example, but if doing these things causes you to overlook excessive electricity consumption or huge amounts of your useful resources going directly to a landfill, then they might be the band-aid that keeps you from addressing a gaping wound. The good news is that natural and regenerative building isn't only for people who are building a home from scratch in the woods. Though there are countless examples of cute rustic little cottages built with mud and sticks, the exact same materials can be used to build gorgeous mansions, a modern bungalow, or even just to beautifully renovate an existing industrial structure. So you shouldn't despair if you already have a great home in a good location, but just wish that it could be retrofitted to reflect your love of the environment. The only limitations are the skill sets of the builders and the imagination and tenacity of the owners. So as important as it is to design for food production, soil building, and water harvesting, I mean, it's a big part of what I do for my job as well, you'll never reach a regenerative lifestyle if your buildings are toxic, wasteful, and consumptive. Buildings are the most essential and too often overlooked part of a truly regenerative living system. So let's get into the design questions and criteria that I use almost on a daily basis to assess a build site, incorporate the needs and wants of my clients, and to make sure that the environment around the building is not only protected, but actually cared for and coaxed into its full potential. So the list that I'm about to go through won't guarantee at all that your structures are perfect, but you'll be miles ahead of most designers if you at least consider all of the questions on the list. So here is the Abundant Edge building design process as it is currently. Let's start with the essential site analysis. And of course that means mapping. Now you don't need to get an entirely professional surveyed map. It definitely helps, but at least get the compass coordinates, the general contours, and any major features. From there, climate assessment is key. The overall climate is essential. The average annual rainfall, major seasons and their average high and low temperatures, and likely major climactic events such as droughts are very important. Then we move on to natural disaster assessment. Everything from earthquake risk, volcanoes, which is important where I live, storms, and especially flood potential. At least in the U.S., floods destroy more homes and displace more people than any other natural disaster. It's extremely important. From there we move to contour and slope. Where and how does water and airflow move on the site? The contour, the topography of the land is going to tell you a lot about how those elements move. Now you want to check the ability of your soil to drain. Now here's a really quick way that you can get a good idea of this. On multiple sites around the land that you're assessing, dig a one foot deep hole by one foot around, and in that hole pour one gallon of water, and time it to see how long it takes to absorb into the soil. If it absorbs in a few minutes or within 20 or 30, your soil already has pretty decent drainage. However, if it stands there for a really long time, or 
in some cases even evaporates faster than it seeps into the soil, you have some pretty heavy clay deposits, which, you know, tells you some information about what you might want to build there and the likelihood of standing water accumulating in that place. But the good news is that that heavy of a clay content has a lot of benefits as well. You can use it as a building material or even as a pond liner. So don't think that it's a, a limitation. Now we want to check where the access points are on the site. I'm talking about things like roads, driveways, docks if it's bordering water, etc. And then major features and vegetation on the site. Everything from huge rocks and trees to gullies, creeks, or even previously disturbed sites. Are there already buildings there? Have the previous owners fenced out a large area? All of those are relevant. Then you want to see where the microclimates are on your site. Now, obviously, with permaculture design, microclimates are something that you can have a lot more effect on as you start to design and manipulate the landscape. But there can be some major differences in, let's say, temperature or air flows based on, you know, if there's a small grove of trees or a forest. The shade can really change the aspect of what you're able to plant there or how a passive solar home might interact with the site if it's shaded out from a certain angle. And lastly, check your relative and absolute elevation. I'll talk about those for a second. So your absolute elevation is how high or low you are from sea level. And your relative elevation is very important for things like assessing flood risk. For example, if you're in a valley in the mountains, like I am where I live here, you're much more likely to have water washing down in your area during extreme weather events. Whereas if you're up high on a hill in relation to the land around you, you're much more likely to be safe from things like flooding. Now, another big part of assessing a site is figuring out what materials are there. And this is where we really get into natural building, per se. So what materials are available on site? Building materials such as clay soil, stones, lumber, and suitable grasses could save you tons of money in construction if you're able to incorporate them into your building. What materials are then available locally, so immediately outside of your site? Check in with neighbors, community boards, municipal bodies, even dumpsters and landfills could have perfectly good materials and even tools. Just get creative. And then from there, what materials are available at a distance but ideally have the lowest embodied energy and lowest toxicity. Now, I would encourage you to always look in these cases for secondhand recycled or refurbished materials. Giveaways on Craigslist, um, garage sales. I mean, there's tons of websites out there for reclaimed and refurbished materials. And then if you still can't find what you're looking for and need to buy something new, then you want to start looking at whoever's producing it most sustainably. So talking about like sustainably harvested lumber, using non-toxic preservatives or treatments, um, as just, you know, a, one example. So all of these different site factors will set the limitations for the project. But don't be discouraged because limitations are actually essential for good design. Think of it this way. If somebody just handed you a blank sheet of paper, and said, draw me a house. You'd have so many follow-up questions, like what kind of house? Where is the house gonna be? 
and all of those other things. Whereas if someone handed you a list of criteria of things that you could do and what you couldn't and what size the house had to be and how many people would be living inside of it, you would have a lot more to work with about what you would start to design and draw. And all of those seeming limitations from the site assessment that you just did are actually really going to fuel your creative juices and cause you to really think carefully about what you're designing and how it interacts with that environment. Besides, the next limitation is really going to set the pace. And of course, I'm talking about either your clients or your own budget. So from here, you're likely going to reassess your ambitions a good bit when you see the amount that you have to work with. So from here, you first want to focus on your needs. Take care of these first, see what you have left to work with, and then start adding on your wants. But you always want to take care of these first. So let's go through this list and start, of course, with sanitation. So keep it clean, you hippie. You don't want to get sick. This is really important. Now, from there, cooking is very important because you're almost always going to want to make most of your meals at home. It's one of the most sustainable things you can do both for your wallet and for your health. So start with the basics and then get more luxurious from there if your budget allows. From there, we go to sleeping. Now, sleeping takes up about a third of your life. So while it may seem a bit more of a want, I would definitely consider it a necessity. And you want to start thinking about the criteria in your building design that will allow for good sleep. From there, we go to security. Now, security covers a lot of different things. We're talking about security against the weather, security against disease, breaches in privacy, etc. Start thinking outside the box the things that you would like to be separated from by your building and consider those in your design. Then let's move to storage. So even if you're an absolute minimalist, even if you don't have a whole lot of stuff, you're still going to want to consider convenient and secure places to at least store your essentials. But if you're like most people, you're probably going to start to acquire other goods and materials over time. So think ahead as to where it would be convenient and secure to store those things too. Now, this one is a little bit of a variable. If you don't work from home, it's not absolutely essential. But if you do plan on working from home, say you're a carpenter and need a workshop, um, or you work on the computer and need an office, workspace is going to be pretty essential here. So here's a quick list of good questions to ask yourself to design a little bit more thoughtfully and responsibly. So let's start with, how will the building make best use of all of the resources and features on the site? So from here, you want to refer back to that site assessment that you just did, and Make sure that the resources that you have available to you are being incorporated and utilized well by the design for the structure. From there, how will it deal with waste? If you have a great, beautiful, naturally built structure that has no consideration of how to deal with waste products, whether it be water waste, uh, sewage, garbage, and things like that, you're really going to struggle with the whole regenerative lifestyle concept. You want to be closing as many loops, recycling any waste products back into your system, and creating new uses and you know healthy applications for all of those things. From there, how will the design incorporate systems that make it easier to make positive choices rather than destructive ones? 
So this is kind of elaborating on the how will it deal with waste question. The fact is that there are a lot of systems that you can put in that, you know, even if you're in your most apathetic day and you don't care, you're just tired and, you know, it doesn't matter. The systems in your house or in your living environment can make it so that even when you're completely burned out, your decisions and habits are constructive and positive by default. For example, if you have a dry toilet system rather than a flush and a septic, it means that you're constantly going to be creating uh, compost and useful material out of a waste product that is otherwise churned into septic systems or a large uh, treatment facility that's very energy consumptive. So those default decisions cause you to make responsible choices because they were put in correctly. That's just one example. You can go really far with it. It's something that I'm always challenging myself to think around as well. Now, how will the design facilitate the functions of the inhabitants? This is another one that's a bit abstract, but can really make or break the comfort and the usability of your structure. I'm talking about things like passions, hobbies, and relationships, among others. Let me give you an example with relationships. So how can a structure facilitate the relationships in your life? Well, here's one option. If you have a very large dining table and a lot of like open social area, chances are you're going to play host a lot more. People are going to feel comfortable and welcome when they come to your place, which will cause them to come over more often. And that helps to facilitate connections, care, and growth of the community around you. Obviously, there are tons of other options. It's another one because it's abstract that you can get extremely creative with and can make a huge difference in the way that you or your clients interact with the space that they'll be living in. Now, how will the design allow for the growth and expansion of the lives of the inhabitants, both physically and emotionally? Think about not just how comfortable and usable the space will be immediately when you move in, but years and years down the line. Do you plan on having children? Do your clients intend to have their parents move in as they retire and become older? What about when you grow older? Say you have a very thin, narrow, and tall building with a lot of flights of stairs. Are you still going to be comfortable living there when your mobility decreases? These are some things to think about. Now, how does the building contribute to the surrounding ecology and community? Or if it's not designed well, detract from it. Again, this is not an entire list of all the questions you need to be asking, but it's a really good start. And if you at least consider all of these, chances are you're going to make some very responsible and insightful decisions in whatever you design. So now let's get to the fun stuff. We've addressed all of our needs. Let's go into our wants. What details, features, and feelings do the clients or yourself want? Why do they want them? And why do they think they want them? Now, this sounds like a nagging kind of obnoxious question. And if asked incorrectly, it kind of can be. But I'll give you an example from personal experience. So I had a client who said that they wanted a big rec room with soundproofing so that they could use it as a music hall and invite their friends over to jam. Now, that sounds great. It sounds like a really fun space to have inside of a home. But if you ask the question, well, why do you want that space? I got the answer that, you know, they wanted to help build community and 
kind of facilitate creativity with uh, and among their friends and have a creative outlet in their living environment. Now, there's a number of ways of achieving that, and not all of them happen necessarily inside of the house. I also knew that this couple wanted to have kids in the future, and I started thinking, well, if there's a baby inside of the house and there's also a big music room, chances are there's going to be a lot of noise overlap that could disturb the baby while it's sleeping. Perhaps that space is better moved outside. We started thinking about designing a music space outdoors that is a little further away from the house and less likely to disturb the inhabitants inside. So by addressing sort of the core want, we figured out that we could provide for that desire in a different way than the client had originally envisioned and, you know, help to facilitate other functions in the house that they weren't considering at the same time. That's just one example. Again, the more abstract you get with these things, the more creative you can be with your solutions. So let's start thinking about things that make your place much more comfortable. The point of this exercise is to ask why at least once or twice when figuring out the aspects and the features in a home that you or your client desire. Usually by getting to the core motivation of the things that you want, you can find alternatives when the initial ideas either are impractical or don't work in that particular application and still find ways to meet those desires in other ways that at least address the core reason as to why they want them. So let's start talking about things that make a structure much more comfortable. I'm talking now about like an ideal temperature range. If you're someone that constantly runs cold and you live already in a cold environment, you're gonna wanna have a lot of insulation, probably some thermal mass on the interior, a good heating system, ideally one that isn't consumptive, in order to keep yourself constantly in a comfortable temperature range. Also, air quality. If you live, say, in a desert where the air is constantly dusty and dry, you might want to consider some filtration options, or if you're in a kind of a stale, muggy area that tends to be a little bit moldy in the air, Proper ventilation is going to make a huge difference in the interior uh, quality of your home. Now, humidity is a big consideration as well. I've lived in really, really dry climates where, you know, my throat was always a little bit sore and dried out, caused my skin to get ashy, and I made some changes in the interior by adding some plants that constantly were respiring a bit of moisture into the air. Um, putting clay plasters in the interior of your house really helps to moderate the humidity of the interior as well. And there's a lot of things that you can do to help to moderate this and to keep it even throughout different seasons. Now, say you live in a really beautiful area and you want to maximize the views. Definitely take that into consideration on the site as well. Oftentimes, you can open up beautiful views just by pruning plants creatively um, or putting a little lookout on a second story that could also function as a library. Just spitballing some ideas here. Now, personal space is really important to a lot of people. I know it is for me. 
So a little bit of privacy that can be kind of reclaimed as something personal and unique is very important to a lot of people, especially children. Community space, on the other hand, having big open areas, large dining room tables, maybe big verandas and places where you can host people really helps to strengthen personal relationships and bonds to a community. What about extras? Things like more storage, uh, other appliances, big windows, comfy furniture, creative spaces, and things like that. How many of those can be incorporated in a thoughtful and cohesive way with the rest of the needs that we addressed earlier? What about soundscape? Things like noise privacy, or maybe even noise accentuation. Do you want to play a lot of music? Do you want it to reach other parts of the house? These are good things to consider as well. And lastly, lighting. Natural lighting coming in through various parts of the day can really help you to feel more alert, a lot more focused and more productive. And on the other hand, in the evening, where do you want certain types of lighting? Do you want dimmer switches to be able to change it based on mood, based on time of night, etc.? These are all great things to consider when you're thinking about your own personal comfort or that of your clients. So that wraps it up for the essentials of my own design criteria that we use constantly here at Abundant Edge. What's most important to know about this list is that it's meant to be a concise and easy to follow guide to making responsible and insightful choices. The list is constantly evolving and updating with the experience gained by myself and the Abundant Edge team. So keep an eye out for updated and revised versions in the future as we refine our systems and our processes. Now, if any of you out there are interested in getting a more in-depth education on professional natural building design, you can take a look at the courses on both natural building and permaculture design that we offer at Abundant Edge, and you can find all of that information under the Education tab on the website. Now, most importantly, I would never expect you to remember all of the things on this list, so to make it easier to access the design criteria conveniently, I've put it all on a PDF that you can get for free by going to the show notes for this episode on AbundantEdge.com and clicking the PDF download link. I would also love to hear from all of you listeners about your own design processes and priorities. And if any of you have any questions for me or any of the other team members, you can reach us directly on our Facebook page by searching Abundant Edge. So leave your questions and comments there as posts or in private messaging, and we'll either get answers to them as soon as possible, or maybe even answer them in a podcast or a blog post in the future. So that is it for our special episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. 
All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.